You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. My name is Latifa Simon, and I'm the president of the Akhenati Foundation, a foundation committed to funding the movement for racial justice here in the Bay Area. And I am so honored uh, to be moderating this conversation. So good afternoon and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum with the Commonwealth Club. Today, I'm pleased to be in conversation with the most amazing, one of the most amazing scholars in this moment, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. And Dr. Kendi is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is a national book award winning and number New York number one best-selling author behind such works as Stamped, From the Beginning, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Anti-Racist Baby, which if you haven't read, I read it with my nine-year-old. She's not a baby, but it was just a fantastic, it's a fantastic text that will not leave my bookshelf. Um, and just last month, Time Magazine named Dr. Kendi one of the hundred most influential people in the world. Today, Dr. Kendi joins us to discuss his newest work, Be Anti-Racist, a journal for awareness and reflection and action. Dr. Kendi, welcome. Um, and it's crazy because when you think of you know professors who are number one on the New York Times bestseller list and book award winners, they typically you know, kind of look like grandparents. Um, and so, so I'm nervous because, you know, you're a professor and I'm also realizing that you are a sort of a contemporary scholar, but you've dedicated your life to this work and it is just such an honor as somebody who wants to be a part and believes that I am a part of a very large community of folks seeking um, the promise of, of democracy and justice. Um, we're just so thankful for your commitment uh, to the word, to the to the scholarship, and to gathering community around these ideas. Um, so, before I get into questions, how you doing? Excited right now to be talking to you. It's 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 been too long. And I keep seeing you on these like talk shows and the news, and we know that you know you make scholarship approachable. So, I mean, so we talked about a few questions that I might ask you, but I have a, a one that I just made up. Um, so what is it like being like a, a serious scholar who now you're added into a pop culture conversation? I'm not talking about the conversation, the real deep and important and critical conversation um, you know, around race. But, you know, there are celebrities that are quoting, you know, your words. And, you know, typically scholarship stays in university and, and, and with with practitioners ex- outside of academia. But your work has crossed some chasms. Like, what does it feel like? And did you think that that was going to be the result of your works? No, I did not think that would be the result, you know, of my work. And and I, I think for me, I, I tend to think less about what it feels like for me and, and more I see it as a responsibility or as my responsibility to to ensure that that the insights and the findings of other scholars are, are, are reaching the general public um, and, and that I'm lifting up, you know, other scholars who have certainly lift, lifted me up. And, and, and so in many ways, I feel in many ways, my work is, is in this sense is like a bridge, um, you know, a bridge to a massive community of scholars who 
who many of us need to be reading and who have certainly inspired um, and tutored me. Right. And this idea of making um, scholarship palpable um, and, and clearly the idea of um, sort of examining the what you and others have called America's original sin to examine and, and unearth and peel it back and understand its roots with the, I as I read you, the hope um, that there will be uh, a reckoning to abolish. But I think it's one of the things I want to talk about in the beginning of this conversation is um, how, how did you come to, um, you know, what, what King called being a race man, someone who was just talking about race all the time. Um, oftentimes folks who are in the academy are asked to uh, sanitize their conversations about um, what has been and what is as we talk about uh, the assault on the black and brown body and, and, and bodies in this country. But you've been pretty steadfast. Can you give us just a few minutes about your journey in, in academia and your activism with, with within and out um, and, and how you've come to this place? And why now? Why all of this products from you? Why all this writing from you right now? Is it consequential? Uh, is it a coincidence? Talk to us a little bit about who you are. Well, I think really at the sort of core has has been really a deep and abiding love for Black people. And it was certainly sort of instilled in, in me by my, by my parents. Uh, and, and I think the reason why I really wanted to start with, with, with that love, or at least what I thought was love, is because particularly by the time I got to college, I, I began to see that in many ways, I did not love black people, and and that contradiction, um, through revealing my own anti-blackness, was was something that really sort of led me down this sort of path, um, and you know to truly embrace um, and and love you know in an action sense um, or as a verb you know black people and 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 I think that sort of grew to a love of of, of people. Um, a love of humankind, um, and and I think my work has been principally sort of victim focused. In other words, you know, thinking very deeply about what, let's say, black people or or black transgender women or or, or black poor people, or you know, how folks are thinking and feeling, um, how folks are being affected and affected by certain policies and, 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 and ideas. Um, and, and really like many, many folks, you know, around the country wanting to protect and defend, but more so defend these people um, just as I'm defending myself. And, and, and so it's, for me, it's been less about, you know, getting tenure. It's been less about any awards. It's been less about any recognition um, you know, it's it's fundamentally about, you know, protecting um, Black people and really humankind. Um, and I think to your last sort of question, why sort of so much, so many new products now, uh, I think that's what happens when you go through cancer, because <laughs> you know that, uh, you know, you, you know, I just don't know. I live pretty much three to four months in which you know, and and you, you, I just never know when, um, you know, how much longer I have to live. 
You know, I, I appreciate that. You know, Dr. Kendi, I don't, I think we might have talked about this. You know, my husband battled cancer. Um, I don't know if we talked about that. Did we? So I lost my husband seven years ago and he was a writer and he actually had gotten a fellowship at, um, at Stanford. And there was so much life in our clinical world. He had a very rare form of leukemia and, um, I get it. Like, I just, I, I, I love you for part of the reason why I've been such a fan of your work is because, and I am a spiritual woman, you know, I, it's like when God moves through us um, at, at, at these very complicated times, I saw that, you know, with, with my husband, Kevin, and you've been talking about that and about, about this, this understanding of giving, giving breath and life um, to all that, you've been able to touch through, through academia. And so I just uh, thank you for that. And I thank you for sharing your story, the clinical story of, of what I say, we will all meet, we will all meet uh, just the complications of life um, and your grace in your work. I'm just, I'm always just so in awe. Um, And thank you for giving and giving and giving. I think we have to thank your partner and your child too, because they're like, hello, right? Um, How many hours a day do you work? I, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about this idea of um, of what is really interesting, both you know, in 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 this workbook that we're discussing today, being anti racist, and also you know, and how to be an anti racist. Which I was really captivated by the first chapter when you, you talk about the speech that you gave uh, at the oratorical contest, um, the MLK oratorical contest. And I won't spoil it for folks who haven't read it, but it grabs you into the book. And what you do, in some ways, shocked me in in both books. Well, in this book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist and Be Anti-Racist, you reflect on the first chapter. But you do what uh, my Black Studies professors told me that we shouldn't do, that we should not personalize the structures of racism, that, frankly, racism and racist policies exude from structures and I, as a Black woman, there is no possible way that I have the power and the space to influence or propel racism. And you tell us, no, 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 no. We're going to walk back from that. We're going to examine that. And so the, there has been some criticism from some folks. Who said, Why would he do that? Why would he put racism and the sin of, uh, of, of the indoctrination of racism on Black folk? on individual white people, when in fact, the, these, this is structural. Talk to us about that, because there's some folks who haven't read the book. And if you go into the book, you explain further. But give, give, give us a little bit. Well, I should say, I think one thing I didn't do in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist that would have made this clearer was, I think it's critically important for us to distinguish the term racism from racist. So racism is inherently systemic and structural. And and so the question that and black your black studies professor, my black studies professor, had, were, 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 you know, it, it wasn't black people as a group uh, who have historically been engaging in racism. And I would actually agree with that. I would. Uh, and then I would add that black people as a group have historically been engaged in anti-racism, which is also structural which is also systemic. Black people collectively, I should say, generally speaking, 
have been supporting anti-racist policies that could lead to equity and justice for all. Black people have been supporting policies that, that, that are reducing or that can reduce inequities. Black people have, generally speaking, been defending or expressing anti-racist ideas. There's nothing wrong with Black people. Uh, and, and so I think it's important for us to, to recognize that, um, that collectively as a group, Black people have been engaged in anti-racism, while white folks have, been, have collectively as a group been engaged in racism. But when you distinguish racism from racist, racist is individual. So whether individual policy, individual idea, or individual person. And the question for the individual is, am I upholding or challenging the system of racism? <laughs> That's the fundamental question. And there's only really two sort of ways for the individual to go in any given moment. Either that individual is, is challenging or upholding this larger system. And, and what are the, one of the things that I've been trying to argue and show with my work is the way the individual relates to the larger system. So what people think that I'm doing is, oh, let's not talk about the system anymore. I just want, no, no, no. We're talking every day to individuals. Individuals are asking, okay, what should I do or not do? And essentially what I'm saying is, well, you know, when you're doing nothing in the face of these policies and powers that are maintaining injustices and inequities, you, individual, you're being racist. That other individual who is... Is, 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 is challenging those racist ideas and policies, who's getting in positions of power and instituting anti-racist policies, that individual is being anti-racist. And then the, the other thing about this sort of structural is when you look at um, sort of racism, um, again, as a collective systemic form, white people are benefiting from, from racism. Black people are not benefiting vis-a-vis uh, white people. White people have privilege as a result of racism. Black people do not have privilege as a result of this system of racism. But then when you change that to the individual, you know, does an individual, so if I, let's say, decide to start engaging in sexually assaulting Black women, would I as an individual benefit from the way society and the state does not protect Black women? That's a different question, right? And, and I think that's one of the things people need to understand. And so that's how a Clarence Commons can recognize how he as an individual benefits because his blackness is combined with his conservatism, which then allows him individual uh, to, to enter onto the Supreme Court with only about a year of judicial experience. You know, is Daniel Cameron as an individual Anyway, so, so, so I think that's one of the things that I've been trying to argue is, is that all of us as individuals, no matter the color of our skin, what are we doing? Are we upholding or challenging the system? And, and, and I, I think what that then does for, for people um, who historically have been imagined that they're immune, that no matter what they do, they're, they're challenging the system of racism, no, that causes them too to be like, no, what are you doing too? And of course, they don't like that. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I just love the answer because, you know, what you, you ask us to do is um, to do the work. And you know, it's so funny, you know, as somebody who um, I'm now on the, the philanthropy side, right? And we have to ask folks of how they are undoing racist policies. But you, you actually purport, it's not like there's no one group, right? There's no one group or even a collection of groups that can undo, even in a city like Oakland, right, where we um, we know that there are a number of leaders, sisters, who had developed a movement to get police out of schools. And they purported that that very policy of having police in black and brown schools was racist. Um, and there were people who, with black and brown skin, who ushered those police officers in over 50 years ago, right? Um, so I actually want to talk about, we have about 20 minutes till we go into question and answer. So if there are folks who want to put in some questions, we'll, we'll go there. But, you know, being anti-racist is, you like, you, I, I love this book. I, I have read this book down three times in the past four days because there's, it's not a lot of reading to do, but it's a lot of work that you're asking folks to do. Cause we always say, do the work. If you want to, uh, deal with your racism, do the work. But there's not like a 1-800 number you can call to do the work. There's not like a class at the local city college. You know, there's not a, um, a, a Bible study at every single church or at every single masjid or synagogue that helps us undo these ideas. Talk to us why you put together, you know, you are a serious academic. You know, you got students writing papers for you right now. Why did you do a workbook? I want to talk about the, that piece of what are you expecting for folks to gather from these beautiful questions that you're very difficult, uncomfortable questions that you're asking all of us. So I think in addition to what you just described, like, you know, that, that we're asking people to do the work, but it, it, it's easier for those folks to do the work, you know, if we give them tools to do so. And, and I was hoping that this would be, would, would be a tool. But in addition to that, you know, one of the things that I realized about myself is is my sort of anti-blackness, whether that was a general anti-blackness or an anti-blackness towards, you know, black women or black poor people or black queer people, um, prevented me from seeing the actual racist system that was ensnaring and, and um, these groups of people. And and so, and it took me quite the the time to really look at myself for myself and really begin to unpack. And, and fortunately, I had some incredible teachers and, and you know, teachers of experience that, that really put up a mirror. Um, but I knew that other people may not have that. Um, and, and so, you know, many people have come to me of different races um, and, you know, obviously, especially, you know, um, particularly black and white folks, um, but, but I don't want to sort of leave out Native Asian and, and, um, and Latinx folks about, like, how did I do that, <laughs> right? How did I end up, you know, really thinking about my own journey? And, and, and so I was like, well, what if I create a workbook that essentially um, systematizes precisely what I did for myself so that other people can do it for themselves. So essentially, you know, I, in a sense, created a roadmap that I took, a conceptual roadmap that, that other people can essentially take to. Okay. So, so with that, okay. So like on page, 
120, right, of, of, of this new text. You ask the reader to list three ways that you can begin using your power in the racial struggle. I was like, well, I mean, concrete, like that's pretty concrete. Um, and from, you know, the woman who lives six doors down, an amazing, sweet white woman who her kids are off to college. Like, I, I want to give her this book because she asks me all the time, what can I do? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, is, it, is it just going to a protest? Is it, you know, is, is it, what is it? Um, what are, when, when you're asking people these questions, what's the expectation of how they move through their process? Sure. So that's, I'm happy you asked that because, you know, one of the things that I think we need to talk more about those of us who are in this struggle and are trying to, you know, attract other people to join us is power and, and what is power. And, and I think the simplest way for us to understand power is at the individual level is to think about it in sort of three ways. The ultimate form of power is, is policymaking power. And, and so you literally have the power <laughs> to change a policy that can improve the lives of, of, of Latinx people in your sort of, quote, domain or community or institution. So the question is, are you going to do it, right? So there's policymaking power. And then there is policy managing power. So somebody else made a policy that you know is racist. So what you can do is thwart it, right? You can figure out ways to not carry it out, just like my ancestors were trying to figure out ways to essentially not pick as much cotton as they... <laughs> Um, as they were demanded to do, right? You can, you know, consciously undermine racist policies, you know, as a, you know, in that sort of middle management role. And if you're not in one of those two roles, then you, every single individual has the power to resist policy. So, so whether that's, you know, you, you recognize that, that your sort of local city has a, your city has a, has a no-knock warrant policy, and you see the ways in which that contributed to the murder of Breonna Taylor, and so you decide to join the organization that's challenging that policy or fund that organization or give that organization a platform during their campaign to undermine that policy, you're resisting policy. Yeah. I mean, it, what's, what's every single... What, what I found to be extremely beautiful, but also it's complicated and, and hard. I, I have made a commitment to move through this workbook as a black mama, widow, disabled woman. And, and I, every single, almost every single question, I gasped a little bit. Um, and I want to take, before, before I take you to page 10, right, um, the, the first question that you ask is you say, have you ever described yourself as a as not racist, and what does not racist mean to you? And what it made me think are some of the most racist folks that I've known in my life, both professionally and personally, who would swear that they are in fact not racist. And you know, your work has you know, given me the chutzpah to say that's not your call to make. And, I, <laughs> and so I want to talk about that. This first. This first question, and then I want to talk about some definitions. We have about we have some time, so let's let's talk about this first, this big no no we have some time. This big question, that first question, that throws you into this text and throws you into this exercise, and then I want to go to page ten and and talk to you about how you got uh, to these sort of definitive definitions of racism, of racist policy, and so on. Well, I I, I think 
that I, I wanted to really begin the the book asking that question because in many ways most people who swear they're they're not racist have never actually sit down or sat down to really define what it means to be not racist, right? Um, and 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 I think it's important for people to have defined the terms that they use, especially the terms that they use regularly. And I have yet to be able to come across a definition of not racist. And so when you have a term or a phrase that nobody can define, then what you begin to realize is that it's actually serving as, a, as another purpose, which is to deny one's own racism. I just love that so much. You know, it's crazy because but this is going to sound ridiculous. Um, but, you know, my parents, my dad's family, they're from Louisiana. And there is no canical recipe for good gumbo. Right. So watch what stay with me here. And, you know, as, as black folks, we, we in some ways we have to laugh about the pain of racism as we work to undo it because it's so deep and, and it's so visceral. And the experiences that we have are, are so real. I will never forget seeing my dad lying on the ground when he took me to an arcade. A police officer thought he was somebody else and threw him down on the ground. I fell to the ground. And I looked at his eyes and it was so clear that he was he had no power. And looking at his baby girl, having no power, having his face you know, to the concrete, you know, those are some of the first experiences of Black men feeling like nothing in the face of the state that I had. So when I talk about there's no definition to or no recipe, good recipe to good gumbo, so then everybody, all my aunties think they make the best gumbo. There was no clarity. There was no path, right? And I, what you do, um, it just had me think of, of the, the many fights about what's the right way to do X, uh, what's the right way to make that pot taste the right way. And undoing racism in the United States, you 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 provide us, um, which I thought was so helpful, with some of the places that you've come to in terms of defining racism. Talk to us a little bit more about that. What is a racist policy? What is a what is racism? Talk to us about that. Well, I mean, a, a racist policy is any measure that leads to racial inequity or injustice. And 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 I'm happy you asked about defining policy than racism, because racism, I define it as a powerful collection of, of racist policies that lead to racial inequities and are substantiated by racist ideas. And, and, and I, so, you know, if there's, if there's a specific contribution, scholarly contribution that I've sought to make with my work, um, it is defining terms. And I am not an expert on all things about race and racism. Uh, I certainly am not an expert on all things black people. I don't, you know, if I was in in a in a in a, a contest to discern the best gumbo, that that I would not like. They'd be like, "Boy, you don't know good gumbo." So, you know, so I, there's so many things about black people that I'm still learning, um, and there's even so many things about racism that I'm still learning. But but what I you know have sought to provide expertise on is how we're defining terms, and and that expertise is not grounded in me deciding how I'm going to define it. It's me sort of, in other words, you know, uh, irrespective of of research. It's really based in after studying the entire history of racism. 
seen how it's operated uh, over the course of nearly 600 years. Uh, and, you know, from its origins in, in Western Europe to its sort of life uh, in colonial America and other places, and certainly through its sort of emergence in the United States. And so from the history, I've, I've defined these terms. Um, and, and, I, and, and I think it's important for us to, I, I just want to sort of communicate that because one of the things I think it's important for us to also realize is especially those of us who are in this space is we are not experts on everything. I am not an expert on everything. But one thing I, I do know is how we should be defining terms like racism, racist, anti-racism, and, and anti-racist. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it's important for us to realize it. You know, I just, I, I just enjoy um, your discussion on clarifying the why so much as I've seen you and, in, in, you know, in this, in this space that, you know, you are, you are all up in this public intellectual space. And I just, I'm so excited that there is this chasm that is happening in the country and your scholarship is along line with this conversation. It's so right on time. You dedicated your life, and again, there, there. If if you look in the text and your references, I mean, there's there are hundreds of references of other scholars, of of uh, centers you mentioned, of, of of collective writings that you mentioned, um, both from the academy, but also you know, foundational documents of this country, the Federalist Papers, and so on. I'm curious, um, why be an anti-racist? I mean, like like. If this is in fact the the country of, uh, of of collective ideas, why should we, and this is rhetorical, commit ourselves as a nation to doing this work? I mean, it it's a lot of work, and why? I let's say I, you know I work at the local AT and T store. What I got four kids, or. I'm the mayor of a city, and I believe that I am, in fact, anti-racist, but haven't done my work. Um, you've put your life into this idea that this country should be actively undoing its racism. What is the hope? What is the, the chasm that you hope we cross, whether it's outside our, in our children's lifetime? What's the hope? And it's, it's not a, a prayer, a little house on the prairie hope. Like, I really want to hear, like, if we can rid ourselves of racist policy, if people can identify how they have been complicit in ideas that dehumanize people, then what happens? What's the hope there? Well, first, that humanity will survive. And, and, and so I suspect right now, you know, two people are having a conversation about, and someone's asking the same question about why should people be concerned that the climate is warming? And, and the response that the person is stating is that, you know, climate change is an, is an existential threat to human existence. And, and I would argue, I would agree with that. And I would say that bigotry um, and especially racism is an existential threat to human existence. And so- Why? I mean, I'm, I'm literally just asking for me, like what, what? that's a, that, that statement is, is, isn't, why? Well, first and foremost, when 
we, why are we as a people, as, as humankind, not able to eliminate poverty because of racism? Why are we as humankind not to provide, to ensure that every person has a human right to, to healthcare, to childcare, um, to, you know, a, a dignifiable sort of job? Um, why is it that we we have demagogues and fascists uh, who are in positions of power who are harming even their own supporters, and at the same time their supporters believe that they are saving them or helping them because of racist ideas? Um, why is it? And you sort of go on and on when we think of, for instance, the reasons why we you know, as, as, as a people. And then, so there's that. And then the other, on the other side, what is the greatest sort of terrorist threat um, to Americans and to people throughout the Western world? White supremacists. <laughs> and, and what is their governing principles? Racist ideas. What are their governing principles? Racist policies. What type of world do they want to create? A society where there's slaveholders over all people of color, um, and even over you know white women, and even over poor white people, um, and so you, you and then you know they are in power. In other words, there's a national party and even a president who has empowered these domestic terrorists, and um, and 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 then you know we have we're at this situation in which people are actively championing a civil war. And it's easy for us to forget that the last time this nation engaged in a civil war, which was over slavery and racism, because the vice president of the Confederacy stated that this new nation was based on the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man and slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition, that war led to more American lives lost than every other American war combined. Or if you talk about the anti-Semitism and bigotry that was at the heart of Nazism. And last I checked, you know, the Nazi Germany was critical in, in instituting or initiating World War II or the Second World War, which led to tens of millions of, of people dying, right? And so, like, anyway, I mean, well, I mean, how how else cannot people see? And 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 even anyway, let me let me stop. Well, no, I, you know what? I just I I, I rested my hand, uh, my head on my hand because I just feel like you know, Dr. Kendi, there's some people who are giving gifts of storytelling. Um, and you know, as I listen to you and I read you, I always kind of find myself emotional in some ways because. Um, you know, I, I think you do write, you write for our grandfathers, right? And you write for our sons and our daughters. Um, my grandfather came from Lake Charles, Louisiana to the West, thinking that as a very fair-skinned man that he could leave Jim Crow and he found Jim Crow alive and well in San Francisco. You 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 tell a story um, that is, is, is so profoundly based on fact um, and doctrine and clarity. And you talk about um, faith and, and religion, and you talk about the realities of just everyday people. The last question that I have for you, I, mean, I can listen to you all day, 
um, is, you know, on page, uh, it's 180. And like in all of your books, right? You, like another one of many of our heroes, Dr. Crenshaw, you are consistently intersectional in how you think about struggle in this country and beyond in terms of bigotry. And racism is, again, one of these sins that you uphold that we need to tear apart. But you also talk about um, the the inherent hate that we, we, we must address in terms of homophobia and transphobia. And I think that your scholarship is so rich because you refuse to not have a very clear and intersectional approach to how you think about the danger of bigotry hate, racism, homophobia, transphobia. Before we go to questions, you just talk about how you come to complicating the conversation, right? Of, it could, you could just talk about race in this moment, but you're asking us to do something completely different in, in this particular worksheet and to peel back how we hate, how we hate our queer brothers and sisters and siblings. Talk about that journey from being an anti-racist to also examining these other forms of hatred. So I think through examining the history of, of anti-Black racist ideas and even, and, and not just examining that history, seeing the ways in which so many white people produced those ideas, but then also seeing the ways in which I believed some of them and expressed some of them. And 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 especially from an intersectional standpoint. And and so seeing how white men and black men were agreeing on the same ideas denigrating black women, seeing how white uh cisgender people and, and black cisgender people we're agreeing on the same ideas about Black <laughs> transgender people, seeing the ways, and when I say we, I'm talking about myself as a, as a cisgender person, sort of seeing how, you know, both um, Black and white and, and, and uh, elites were saying the same ideas about Black poor people, <laughs> right? And, and, and I, I, so what's happened and, 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 and I've held many of these ideas, it's very easy for me to just, for, and, 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 and so I think for me, it's critically important for us to realize the ways in which we have privilege. So I have privilege as a man and, you know, as a cisgender person, as a heterosexual and, and, and one of the ways in which I have privilege is because I can basically say, like white men, yeah, these are the things wrong with, 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 black men, with black women. And I can deny the ways in which they are being impacted by that form of, of gendered racism or that form of racialized sexism. I can just deny it and join with white men. But, but then, if I, and then I can then turn around and say, well, I'm not racist because I'm black. Um, or because I'm committed to, quote, the struggle for Black people, when in reality, I'm really only committed to the struggle for Black men. Um, and, and, and so I think that intersectional analysis, you know, that, that, that Black feminists have, have long argued, allows people to really begin to see 
all the different policies affecting different sort of racialized groups, particularly intersectional groups, and even the different ideas, um, and even the, the disparities with the intra-racial disparities between lighter skin and darker skin black people, between black men and black women, between you know poor black poor people and black elites, between native sort of women and native men, and, and I think it's not enough for us to eliminate disparities between races. We have to also recognize and eliminate disparities within the races uh, and that are intersecting and those, the ways in which racism is intersecting with other forms of bigotry to create and maintain those disparities. And, and I think that's why it's so critical for us to be anti-racist. Mm, I thank you for that. Um... There's some good questions coming into the chat. And I'm like, okay, we have like 12 minutes. And the okay, questions... I can be concise. No, I don't want you to be concise. We can answer one. And then like the... the, the it's okay. Because then the, your next book, you can take those three questions, the three questions that are in the chat to your next book. Because, you know, yeah, uh, there's so much, um, there's so much richness. And again, in the storytelling, um, there's a listener named Nick and he's curious about your thoughts about the backlash towards scholars like yourself. And he brings up uh, Hannah Jones and the 1619 Project um, and that backlash. Why it's, why it's there when so much all of all of uh, all of this work is based on fact and scholarship um, and specifically this pushback, he says, by white male writers like Brett Stevens. So whether you address Brett Stevens, but as a whole, why this pushback on clear yeah, timeline-based storytelling about what's happening in this country. And particularly, your work is being lifted up as the work work directly um, in the crosshairs of Donald Trump's assassination on wanting folks to know the truth about racism in this country. What do you think about all that? Oh, to me, it's quite simple. To For our work to have validity is for their work to be invalid. <laughs> so there's two ways they can respond. They can say, you know what, our work actually is invalid and racist, or their work is invalid, and even as some of them say, racist. Those are the only sort of two options. And, and so I think they're fighting back to maintain the validity um, and the legitimacy uh, you know, of, of, of their work. Uh, and, and what we're showing is that indeed their work is deeply subjective that indeed the, their work has a, have created a different set of facts that we can't find, um, and that their work is predicated on, this, on, on these ideas that there's something wrong with people of color, and that that, I, that idea is, is actually a fact as opposed to a false racist idea. And so they're going to strike back to maintain, the, to maintain their standing. It's, it's just so profoundly interesting to see both how you know, folks in in the Twitter sphere, but also folks at the highest level of government um, want to bury um, a story. And, and you and Brian Stevenson have both said similar things that if we are to deal with a horrific and violent relationship, and this one being racism, you have to actually acknowledge and work and work and work through it. There's another question that I think is interesting, and there are educators listening who are in the K through 12 space. Um, they don't have this question comes from. Naholi, I believe that this is the pronunciation, but 
a lot of these K through 12 folks in the public space don't have uh, power control of their curriculum, but deeply want to teach anti-racist ideas. Um, advice to them, advice to these educators. So in the Jim Crow South, in many cases, black teachers did not have control over their curriculums, did not have control over even the books that they were supposed to assign. In many cases, those books described slavery as something that was fought for states' rights, described Black people as enjoying and being civilized during the enslavement era, described the Jim Crow South as this sort of happy happy place with, with these two separate but equal peoples. And so what those Black teachers did is they figured out every which way to use the text as something to critique and thereby teach from, if that makes sense. Or they figured out ways to, uh, to, to sort of teach around the text. And, and, I, and I think that, and I want sort of those teachers to realize that, that, that they had it even worse but they found a way to still raise generations of, of, of black children to, 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 to recognize that, that the problem was Jim Crow mm. as opposed to them. I love and that. And I think everyday teachers can do the same. I think that that is, thank you for that. Whether you are working in corporate, whether you're working in the classroom, uh, this commitment to, to humanity Thank, I mean, th thank you for that that gift, that answer, because I think it crosses sectors. We've reached the point in the program, um, which I'm super excited about, because I actually want you to do like a five day long free <laughs> um, sort of talk for all of us who just want to understand and hear the thousands of, of books that you've read and people that you've researched over the years, understanding how this country can move away. Um, again, as just as, as one scholar, but a scholar who's committed their lives to uh, humanity. Um, but we don't have that time today. But what I would say um, is thank you. And it's a tradition for Inforum for each speaker who comes on to answer the following question. So I want to ask you this. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Let's hear it. Well, since I don't have the power to make uh, Atifa Simon the president of the United States, um, what what I would sort of propose is to build our uh, public opinion, to build our legal system, to build our sort of system of policy based, all based on the great truth that if there is a disparity between groups, whether that is gendered groups or racial groups or uh, different sexual orientations or ethnic groups or national groups, that if there's a disparity uh, between groups, it's not because there's something inferior about the group on the lower end of the disparity. It's because there's something wrong with power and policy in our society. And that's what needs to change. And we would be, as a human community, mandated to to make to identify what needs to be changed, and to change it. 
um, to, to sort of drive home and always sort of defend sort of justice and equity for, for all groups. Dr. Kendi, I just want to thank you for um, that answer and for each day that you've committed to teaching um, something that we all feel like we're promised, liberty. Um, many of us say a liberation, uh, something deeper than equity, um, freedom. So in, in that, thank you. I want to thank you for using this time today to join us at Inforum and with the Commonwealth Club. And thank you, Commonwealth Club, for having the both of us. I would like to remind the viewers uh, that Dr. Kendi's new book, Be Anti-Racist, is now available at your preferred bookseller. Um, small bookstores are good, too, the ones that are open and also the ones uh, online. Uh, if you'd like to watch more of our virtual programs and to support the Commonwealth Club and its efforts in making virtual programming low cost and or free, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Kendi. And again, I'm Latifa Simon with the Akhenati Foundation. And I'm so, so honored that we were have, able to have this conversation. Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>